Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. I'm Genevieve Smith. I'm excited to be back guest hosting this episode. If you joined us last week, you know that I help social impact organizations align their data and data practices to their missions. Nothing is neutral. So the way we understand and interact with our data will always reflect some set of values. It takes intentional work to make sure that they're the values that support our missions. We have another fantastic episode for you today. We will be playing the second half of a panel I hosted for Good Tech Fest last year on decolonizing data and tech for good. If you missed the first half of the discussion, you can listen to it on last week's episode. Let's tune back in. I think all of this is a perfect segue to talk about narrative. And, and one thing that I'm hearing a lot of is so much of this is about positionality and like somebody seeing a map upside down and it's upside down because that's the way that we've seen it. And well, wait, Greenland is as big as Africa. No, it's not. No, it's not. So that conditioning and the positionality, I think really speaks to, especially folks, the dominant culture, folks with ultimate privilege where that's never been challenged and it's sort of been handed over uh, generation to generation, taken for sure. Um, But hearing a lot about positionality and control of the narrative and power and really keeping that power and holding on to it. Um, So I would love to hear from y'all a little bit about um, not only reframing and reclaiming the narrative, but I, in my experience, and for the evaluators on the call, I'm not a technical evaluator, but I work with a lot of them, and I do a lot of work around M&E. In my experience, a lot of these research designs come from anthropology, come from spaces where folks, particularly white folks and European folks, are coming into communities that are not theirs and observing them as the other, rather than teach me is I'm extracting this information from you as a means to an end. Usually uh, it was missionaries. It was, it was, it was a lot. Um, And in this, I think has perpetuated a lot in the field of we intrinsically value quantitative data more than qualitative data. And we want the numbers, we want the prove it, we want the the banker wants the return on investment. I don't know how many of you have heard a board member ask you for the social return on investment number. Stop it. Not a good metric. Not a good metric. We can have a conversation about that later. But um, I think in this sort of when we think about data, we think about numbers and spreadsheets. I would love for y'all to talk a little bit about how you see that storytelling piece. And I think even in this conversation, I've heard like, you know, I'm not really a data person. I do storytelling. Denise, I think you said that stories are data. And so how can we reframe that definition of, of data? I'd love to, to hear about the narrative piece of all of this. Hey, um, oh, sorry, there. You guys? Oh, okay, so um, I, I do like this conversation. No stories without data, no data without stories. Um, <clears throat> we've got a big debate in New Zealand at the moment, um, although I think it's kind of been shut down. Um, there was a big movement in the 90s to get more Māori people into to become PhDs. And there's a book, I'll send the link eventually, about tragic stories of people who went to universities and were the only person at the table in the room and felt lonely and 
disconnected. Um, here's the good news. Those people are being used by us now, not by the academies to do our work. So we've got to find money and funding for them. So, you know, Genevieve, I think one of the things for me is, um, I'm not going to call it soft spots of knowledge, but there are opportunity spots within knowledge. Everybody knows that even when you make a decision on an ROI, there's a little spot within that that's about judgment. That's about um, knowledge. It's not about the numbers, you know? This happens all the time in decision-making. Um, everybody knows that the data only ever tells you so much. Um, it can give you a, a kind of a light scan of certain features or elements, but it never gives you the depth. It never tells you the why. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's um, the great thing about when we learn these things. So I'm, I'm not a numbers person per se. I'm a storyteller too. But I'm also a person who's like, ask the question why. And I think that's the other thing. People say to me, you can't use the master's tool, tools to dismantle the master's house. Maybe we're going to build our own house and we'll use their tools and our tools. So, you know, I'm, we've also got to be a bit, be a bit pragmatic. Um, you're right, Genevieve, we're not going to, you know, create a new whatever world. And, and, you know, maybe we will. We'll create our own little worlds, yeah? And I think that's kind of where I come from and where I work and where I operate. We still have people in the system trying to use qualitative and quantitative and tell the real story. And I think um, a couple of things will just remind the hardcore numbers people, the kind of financial collapses over time that we've seen of the um, share market and of the systems in the US where uh, they tried to program and predict and those things were just failures. Um, we need to call people out on that. I think um, Daniel Kahneman's work in terms of, um, we are not rational human beings. We are you know, beings of multiple meanings. Um, and the fact that you know, sociologists and others have talked about this for a long time, but the economists and the hardcore quants didn't want to acknowledge that. I think those things are opportunity spots. And then what do we insert in there? We insert our information, our knowledge. So just one little story, and then I'll shut up, and then Darren can have a say. Um, I remember we did, um, at the last place I was working, we did some interviews that complemented the quantitative data about what was going on for women in um, lower socioeconomic communities in South Auckland um, in terms of um, um, afterbirth care. And um, the cool thing was, one of the quant guys I worked with, who's an amazing guy, said, Atafai, when we combined the stories with the data, I could hear and see, see the tears in the data. And I was like, whoa, that's deep. I could see the tears in the data. And I said to him, um, I'll tell you what I want to see and hear. I want to see and hear the haka in the data. So the haka is our war dance, yeah? But the haka is more than a war dance. It's also our celebration dance. So it's kind of our culturalness within data you know, this is me playing around with the master's tools and trying to say, well, what can I see? That's important to me. So I think, Genevieve, you know, part of our reframing, part of our re-paradigming, and I think Darren will do it in terms of his data for, for maps with the place names of our ancestors, you know, I'm trying to find a similar thing. Here's my final story, and I think this relates to Darren's work. It's also things we want to measure what's important to us but there are also things important to us we must not measure 
There are stories that we have that are not for everybody's ears. They're only for some communities. And I'm reminded of this, Darren, because I went when I was a young fella and I was a uh, reporter for a student job, you, a part of your mob came over to New Zealand and had a bit of a chat about the knowledge and going into the bush. And this is me, a young reporter said, oh, so what do you talk about to the young fellas in the bush? And the old guy goes, I can't tell you, mate. And I said, come on, mate, I'm indigenous. Tell me what you do. He goes, mate, that knowledge is not for you. It's for our mob. And I loved that because what it also reminded me was Atafai, there's some knowledge that will not be mapped. There is some knowledge that will not be shared with everyone. And we have ways of holding on to that and storing that. And that's our business. So I think part of this is, you know, part of our data stories and our data mapping and our information collection are things that we will not collect and share for all. Um, and that's reframing, that's recentering, that's elevating. Kia ora. So um, someone, I think your name is Elizabeth, asks in the chat, in the question, I would love to hear more about how to speak to a funder about not using SROI as a primary measure. And you know, it's funny, you said you're talking to a group of lawyers. I was talking to 350 public lawyers in the public defender's office yesterday. And part of what I was saying to them is um, all of this work centers around the lenses by which we see the world, right? And those lenses are tied up in our identity. And there's something about dominant culture, white, um, European identity that loves to name and label, but does not like to be named. So I'm going to say that again for Elizabeth, because what those lawyers want you to do in that room is pathologize and name the problems that they decided they don't want to fund. And guess what? That is not up to them. Because I'm going to guess a lot of funders, the money that they're sitting on in the United States was built on the backs of my ancestors. So guess what? You don't get to unilaterally decide how to give me a pittance back. What you need to do is take those funds and make sure that you are including the community in which you're serving. You don't tie things to it. You don't um, ask. So when you talk about the, the, the question at the root is, you know, not using ROI. You can use ROI, but you use ROI along with other, ROI is one aspect of data, one aspect of data points. And I'll close with this. The quantitative data is only as good as what qualitative you have to, um, to, help, you, uh, to help you interpret it, as well as who is gathering it, who put together how you are gathering it, because my guess is when folks want to hold people to numbers and standards and things like that, they're usually not things that are important to the folks that they're trying to affect anyway. So I, that, that's, my, that's my thought is you have to help those people understand that it's their identities that are getting in the way of them being able to see what makes sense to fund and help them understand that there are lots of things that occur outside of our understanding. Yes, yeah, so if I can jump in here, because this is something we talk about at our board and our foundation all of the time. And what I have um, tried to do with our board is to have them understand that 
All we have is money and money alone will not solve problems in communities, right? So we have to understand that there are so many other things that come into play when you're doing complex social change. And a foundation cannot and should not take credit for whatever it is that they're funding because they are but a bit piece in all of the dynamics that have to go into improving lives of people that have historically not been well resourced. Um, so that's the first thing is that people need to understand that you can't, it is not like a factory that you're building widgets. That philanthropy work is just putting a little bit of resources out into communities and it really is up to the communities to then figure out what it is that they need to do to address the problems that they self-define and the solutions that they self-create. Uh, and so that requires a huge paradigm shift in really thinking about what role do you really play as a funder in driving change? And, and if you can start having that conversation with your board, I think you can actually get to a, to a place where maybe they start to see that looking at just ROI is not enough. The other thing I want to say is that, you know, when you are thinking about data collection, um, it usually means that somebody sat down and defined what data is important and how to best collect that data. And usually the people that are doing that work come from a white dominant uh, culture perspective. And then they use that data many ways, many times manipulating the data to be able to tell the story that they wanna uh, tell. And in that process, devalue the perspective of the communities that are actually doing the work, the individuals that are actually on the ground. And so I've been trying to get here at Headwaters for us to sort of say, yeah, there's some data we can collect, but really the most powerful data we have are the stories that our grantees share about what is happening in their communities, not because of Headwaters, but because there are all these different things and factors that are coming into play. And Headwaters is just supporting a piece of that that is allowing them to do the important critical mission critical work that they do uh, every day. It's a hard conversation to have with traditional boards, but we have to push wherever we sit, we have to push those in power to engage in these conversations and really question, why are we collecting this data? What are we doing with this data? Are there different ways to be thinking about data? Look, uh, there's a couple of things in there that are kind of, uh, resonating really, and and probably the point that I'd bring up, um, particularly, is that in in this country we were bombarded by philanthropists. And as soon as you know, in that time period, all these you know white scholars from Western Europe gone. Oh, look, here's this big landmass that's been untouched by humans. We haven't fucked this up yet. Excuse my language. Oh, sorry. Um, but we can study the hell out of them, and that went on. It's still going on now. Um, and there's some very famous white anthropologists who came to this country. Um, but, you know, it's interesting um, to think about how they have dominated the value of the knowledge in an exchange. Um, so we've, we've always talked about, um, we're sick of helicopter researchers who they'll come in, they'll research, you know, our, our people, and then they'll go back into their world and get a higher level of currency from that knowledge because they say they collected it and they came up with this methodology and they brought it back and brought it back to the wider world. 
but when we as Aboriginal people walk into their world with our knowledge, because they didn't have that control, the currency rate drops. Um, and and that, that's happened so often where non-Aboriginal people have gone, okay, let's get funds, let's go and try this with Aboriginal people. It doesn't work because they just don't have the knowledge or the connection. Then when Aboriginal people do something, they look at them and go, oh, let's try and scale and apply scalability to that knowledge. And then that's where the data gets warped, the capture systems get warped. It's because they're always thinking about scalability and how do they value that knowledge once they have control of it. And that's been a, a massive historical issue for us to get traction um, from the qualitative side, because you know they've got crap loads of quant data out of Aboriginal people, you know? Um, but it, it, it's the concepts that we have that stem from you know our understanding of the health of our whole community affects my health. So I measure my health by the, the health of the whole village, although if you like, and, and you know, being able to quantify that using qualitative methodology is something that they can't do, or they've tried, they've made lots and lots of attempts. So um, what we've also noticed is that, especially with philanthropy and, and large, you know, corporations that want to go down that, you know, the social impact route, um, is, is that they do the same kind of thing. They, um, how do they get feel goods in amongst their people? But that doesn't match what we feel as feel goods in amongst our community. So there's that tension in the the, the knowledge exchange and how it operates in their world because they've still got the greatest control of it. So um, yeah, that and that's been a massive thing. And also continuing and Denise, this goes to your point before about the you know the disadvantaged groups. They were actually disenfranchised. Aboriginal people were deliberately kept out of society. Even in places like Brisbane, popular city in the country, they've got a road, it's called Boundary Road. All the Aboriginal people know what that was about. You had to have a curfew to get inside the city after a certain time. And if you didn't, you got arrested. Okay, there is, there's, you know, there's a, there's a grave on Rottnest Island, but the world thinks of Rottnest Island as cute little selfies with quokkas. Never minding that they're walking on the bodies on graves, unmarked graves of my ancestors, because those are the people that um, they would target. They, when they wanted to break down community Aboriginal groups, white people soon figured out who were the holders of knowledge that were the glue that kept those communities together. They would target them, pull them out, the family groups would fall apart. So they understood this, you know, this knowledge system that was there that they wanted to make money from it. But when they couldn't control it, they killed it. So, and, and that's, you know, it's still going on quite subtly in this country. And I, I could talk, tell you hours and hours of the history of this country that people just don't, have no idea about because the narrative externally has been controlled by the dominant society. So anyway, I'll shut up. Otherwise, I'll keep talking. I wish we had all of the time in the world. I think one thing that I'm hearing a lot of again is that control. And one thing that uh, Adafai, you touched on really, really briefly was I can see the tears in the data, but I can't see the joy in the data. And I think, at least that's what I heard. And I think that happens a lot in our narratives around, look at how, look at how much this unaccompanied immigrant child suffered. Look at it, but they were a good immigrant. So they deserved asylum. They didn't do a crime. So what if they did a crime? <laughs> 
So I, that's a huge thing that I want to echo and amplify. Um, another thing that I'm hearing a lot is that trust. And we, at least in the States, we've confounded and, and just put together our understanding of empathy that in my experience, a lot of folks understanding of empathy is I have to get it to be kind to you. Prove it to me that you hurt. Prove it to me that you have a headache. Prove it to me that you are oppressed or are actively oppressed. And then, only then will I give you my full humanity. That's a huge issue. And in terms of what stories we're telling and what data we're collecting, especially for the folks on this call who are actively collecting data and designing research and thinking about your annual reports, why do you need, is that your knowledge? I think that's huge. And yeah, yes, it's, it's so conditional. And one thing, just being aware of time, we are going to move into a Q&A, but I want to talk about usually at the end of these, it's okay, but what can I do, right? What are the things I can do tomorrow? What can I do today and, and over the next year? And uh, before I throw it to the panelists, I want to invite my fellow white folks. Whenever we have, at least in the rooms I've been in, whenever we start to talk about decolonization and colonial legacies and racism and white supremacy, white folks especially have a tendency to start the conversation with, so this is going to be really hard and it's really complicated and we all have a lot of feelings. It's not complicated, pals. There's a lot and there's a lot of emotional work that we have to do. Do not rely on your colleagues of color to walk you through that. And my, my biggest invitation for everybody on the call is when you are in your workplace and this starts to come up and like you're in the DE&I conversation or you're in the knowledge management and equity conversation and somebody says, you know, I just don't know, it's really hard. Call that out, even if you don't know where to go, call it out because we trip over ourselves, centering ourselves in all of this. Um, so that is my most practical call to action for my fellow folks in the dominant culture. Uh, and yeah, I would love to just do a round robin on, you know, what can folks do? I'm, I'm going to do a quick one. Um, and then I'm curious to hear what my fellow panelists um, have to offer is to start by asking, why are you doing what you're doing around data collection? I have a very simple one. When you get hysterical, it means it's historical. Meaning when you see data or you see something that creates a visceral reaction and that you want to defend yourself and you want to, when it's, when, when it's hysterical, when you get hysterical, know that that's because you have some historical ties to what's happening. And, and my other thing is to stay curious. One of the things as a as an able-bodied, non-disabled person, what I'm learning so much of right now is how much, how ableist I am and, and just in the most subtle of ways. And so I don't get defensive when someone points out that. I actually get curious. And so if you can stay curious, then you can do this work. It's when you, you know, shut down and get defensive and, and get hysterical, then you can't. And, and I... I want to high five Genevieve for the asking white folks not to ask their people of color to process. Process with your damn selves. Process with your family. Process. Do not expect 
people of color to process with you? I thought you had your microphone off, Adify, so I was going to let you go first. Uh, um, yeah, look, uh, we we have this thing in Australia called Reconciliation Week, and basically, it's it, it's this concept where you know Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people come together to you know have better relationships. But um, I'm probably a bit controversial in that um, when I I got asked to talk about this while I was working in a branch called System Intelligence and Analytics. I was the only Aboriginal person in there and I had the lady, I saw Reconciliation Week was coming up and ladies come up and said, oh, you know, they were pretty tentative. I could see that they knew the same thing I was thinking. We've got one black fellow in their branch and they want to come and ask me to talk about Reconciliation Week. So I, I just pointed at the flyer and said, you see what it says on the flyer, right? Or the theme. And she goes, yeah, yeah we know it says truth. I said, that's all you're going to get from me. By the end of it, there were about four or five ladies crying. And I was saying, well, you know what? Now I'm giving you a chance. Well, I actually gave no chance. I made them reconcile with your history that you don't want to talk about. Because this isn't about reconciliation between me and you. This is about reconciliation with you and the part of your history you haven't wanted to look at. Open that closet properly. Look at all the skeletons in it. Because the wealth of this country was built on the black back of black slave labour. And Australia's tried to pretend that they didn't have slavery. Well, until you go to that really deep end of the conversation, you're not going to have the guts to go all to all the rest. So once you have that really hard conversation, all the other conversations are going to be easier, or a little bit easier at least. But they've just got to have that recognition that Australia was not built on the back of the sheep. I didn't see a sheep riding around the horse mustering other sheep. There was an Aboriginal person. And we had we had we had um stockmen um where they they pulled up stumps and said we've we're sick of getting paid tea leaves and all that. Most Australians have no idea about this stuff. My dad was paid in tea leaves. And I used to look at that box and think, oh great, we went out of tea for years. Little did I know that's what he was being paid, not money, tea leaves. Sugar, that was happening in my lifetime. And when I go to people, it's their lack of, well, not braveness, I suppose, but it's, it's their historical uh, educational system that has denied that in, in information, not us. So exactly what you're saying, Denise, it's not there for us to activate that hidden part of their history and teach them. So, you know, the one thing I'll say up is that to decolonize something, you, you, they need to hold up a big mirror to themselves and be honest. And we'll be out down here at the beach enjoying ourselves, and when you're ready, we'll come and have a conversation with you. Okay, Kelly, everyone, I'm, I, I love everything that's been said. I um, So here's something I want to throw out there. I'm not too sure how much of this is a DIY thing. So DIY in New Zealand, you know, do it yourself, Bunnings. There are those Bunnings. In New Zealand, we've got heaps of Bunnings. You go in and you buy your own tools and you build your own house. Because I don't know that people know. It's just a fact. I don't know that people know. So, Darren, I went to Rotnest and I did not know. And, you know, I knew after what was on Rotnest. I was like, that's like a place where kids go for schoolies. 
and my nephews and nieces who lived there would be sent over on a boat. It was like this little island off Perth, and you know, you go there for your um, summer break, or you know, um, what's that thing they call? Um, yeah, summer break. You know, the big festival. And then I found out after um, that that particular island, these people's bones buried there, barely buried there, and the kids are walking over them having a party. So um, between us, I don't know who's going to tell people these stories because I don't know that they know, and someone needs to tell them. So maybe it's their own people, maybe. The other thing I worry about is, what if they get shit wrong? So I worry about that. I'm like, yeah, 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 go and read a book. And then they get it wrong. Somebody needs to tell them, no, 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 no. That's wrong. Um, that's kind of how it works in education, with respect. You know, no, 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 you're saying, you're, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Um, I've got a big thing about allies because some of my best teachers were non-Maori people. And some of the best people who taught me some things and we worked together on stuff, we had some hard times. They were not Māori people because I was the only one in the room. Um, and those people don't know everything and they need help. But I've trusted them and learned about them. So that's the thing I was going to say to Brenda too about the whole trust board, SROI, lawyers, board members, accountants. There will be good people on those boards and we need to name them and claim them. There will be great people who are not us, who we think actually those are good fellas. Um, there's a guy, Rob Campbell, who's a board member, um, who's on LinkedIn, and I love his stuff. He's on numbers of hard boards, but he is focused on labor rights. He's focused on, on you know, minority people's getting a fair go. And he has no reason to be focused on that, but he gets it. He gets it, mate. And um, what I know is this. I, I'm not going to win this fight by myself. You know, there's uh, the system's big. I need to find people who are like me. They won't be me, but they're like me. They think like me. I've got to build an army. It's going to be Jedi's and ninjas, and we need an army to do this. Um, so you know, I, I, I'm just trying to work out what, what's that role. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm into allies. I'm into like, you know, how can we help you, um, help us, because this is big work. So um, that's all. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us next week when Andrew sits down with John Moore, Chief Information Officer at the MacArthur Foundation.